Today we return to the amazing New Testament book of 1 Peter. We're going to wrap up 1 Peter today. Um, I'm going to begin by reading the last part of chapter 4, and then I'm going to leave chapter 5 for as we're going through uh, the text a little bit later on. Peter is writing with a caring, as a caring shepherd of the churches there that are now in um, modern-day Turkey. For the most part, these churches are doing well, but they've come under a lot of persecution for their Christian faith. Some of them have even had their property taken away from them because they were Christians. Peter wishes to remind his people then and us today that God is on his throne. And when you entrust your life to God, surprising things happen in the life of a Christian. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard word. In some ways, what we're going to look at today seems so counterintuitive, but, but by your grace and by your spirit, it will not just make sense to us. It will be a treasure for us. And it will change us and give us life, surprising life. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Think of all the things in life that, that you've tried, things that you wished would have surprised you in a good way, but didn't. What comes to mind? Close to the top of my list is quinoa. For a time, quinoa was spoken of as if it was manna from heaven. I wanted to be surprised by its amazing flavor, but yuck. By the way, does anyone still eat quinoa? Notice all those hands were female. Another one is chick flicks. I wanted to be surprised in a good way by chick flicks. I wanted to be able to join the Thelma and Louise fan club. I want to be able to say to my wife, hey, honey, instead of Black Hawk Down or Born Identity, let's instead watch 27 Dresses. In my mind, she would fawn over me. Ah, oh, I love you, Mark Charles Middlecoff. But it's not going to happen. 
But there is something glorious about being surprised in a good way. And no doubt you've had moments like these, right? Perhaps even this past week. You expected meh, but you ended up with OMG. Like two nights ago, my daughter Grace brought home some of her friends from the city for the weekend, and and we had a side dish of grilled corn, fresh local grilled corn, except Grace likes her corn raw. See, the local corn out here is so good, so sweet, so fresh that you, you really don't need to cook it, but it doesn't seem like that. So she had each of her friends try the raw corn, but they were skeptical. should have seen their faces as they leaned in. But then you should have seen their faces and reactions later. They couldn't stop praising, this corn is so good. We've all had experiences where we were surprised in a good way, have we not? What I'd like to present this morning is that the gospel and that the Christian life are in many ways surprising. The word surprise comes up in the very first verse of our text, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's been trying to get into our heads throughout this entire letter is that that the Christian has a surprising way of looking at suffering. The rest of the world is surprised by suffering. The rest of the world runs as best it can from suffering. But the Christian embraces trials. Why? We'll get to that in a moment. But first, there's something far more surprising in our text that we must come to embrace. Peter is telling us a challenging truth that when we come to embrace it, it will surprise you, it will change you, it will mature you as a Christian and cause you to live with great glory and joy. What is it? You ready? You are to entrust yourself to the one who has allowed your suffering into your life in the first place. That's what Peter clearly states in verse 19. Look at it. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to their faithful creator, that's God, while doing good. Peter's saying two things. First, whatever suffering you experience as a Christian, it is according to God's will for you. And two, second, when you suffer, run to God. And trust yourself to him so that he may care for you. This is a surprising way to look at God. God wills our suffering. And when suffering comes our way, we're to run to him. This makes very little sense if you're not a believer. It rings of Stockholm Syndrome. Look that up if you're younger. And it can also be hard for Christians to wrap our heads around. We tend to be surprised when we suffer. We erroneously think things like, my God loves me, so why is this happening to me? Like, is God asleep at the wheel? Has he made a mistake? Is he really not all that powerful? Christian, you've had moments like that before, right? And I bet you know someone who says they no longer believe in God because of some fiery trial that came into their life. But listen, the surprising point this morning is that the same God who allows suffering in our lives is the one to whom we must entrust our lives to. And what Peter wants us to press deep into our souls is that when we live with this reality, our lives actually become surprising. 
We will look at this under two headings. First, surprising glory, and then surprising goodness. First, surprising glory. You know, we tend to be surprised by our suffering, right? But Peter wants us to instead be surprised by God's glory being worked in us, in our suffering. First, verse 12 again. Beloved, do not be surprised at fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, right? The first thing that Peter wants us to get into our head is that when you find yourself suffering, it's not because something strange is happening to you. I used to race motorcycles, and I got a a number of nicknames uh, while I was riding. And one nickname was Crash. Yeah, I know. (laughs) You can kind of connect the dots on that one. Fellow racer would ask me, uh, hey, Crash, how did things go in that first heat race? And then I would respond, well, um, I crashed. (laughs) With a nickname like Crash, one shouldn't not be surprised when he crashes. And listen, with a name like Christian, which means what? Literally, little Christ. One should not be surprised when one suffers like Christ. In fact, we should be surprised when we find ourselves not suffering for Christ's sake. Now, Peter tells us something about suffering so that we're not surprised by it anymore. What what is it? Peter points us to the surprising link between suffering and glory. There's a link between suffering and glory. Let me quickly go through three of these links. The first link is that suffering leads to glory. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that ye may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's in the age to come. Listen, our suffering for Christ finds its significance in Christ's suffering for us. Just as Jesus suffered and rose again in glory and is now seated in glory, so too one day you and me, this is where we're going. This is our trajectory. Our suffering now while doing good is exactly how our Lord lived and died. Peter wants us to see that because our suffering today leads us into the glory of Christ in the future, instead of being surprised by our trials, we're to rejoice in them. Look at the life of our Lord. Was he surprised when any trial came his way? Was he just out like picking flowers and all of a sudden Roman soldiers gathered him in? What a surprise. I had no idea this was coming. No, when he was on his way to Jerusalem, three times he told his disciples that he was going to be handed over and beaten and killed. And on the third day, he was going to rise in glory. But this wasn't easy for Jesus. Remember the three times in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed to his Heavenly Father, if, Heavenly Father, there's some other way in which you can save the world other than me going to the cross, would you please do it? But did you notice how he ended the prayer? But not my will, but your will be done. Which tells us what? Listen, one, Jesus, like us, suffered according to God's will. And two, Jesus entrusted his life and death to God while doing good. We're not being asked to do anything that our Lord hasn't done for us already. 
The first link is that suffering leads to glory in the future. The second link between suffering and glory is that suffering gives us tastes of glory to come in the present. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That's here and now. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Some of you just need to meditate on that for the rest of the week. The spirit of God and glory rests upon you, Christian. Now, a lot of times it doesn't feel that way, right? I don't know if you're like me, but I I feel like I tend to be a little hard on myself. I don't quite get the gospel. I know I should be more like Christ in how I live. I get frustrated with the sin that still clings to me. Every Sunday during the time of confession, I feel like I have to confess the same things over and over again. Did you ever feel that way? You just can't do the Christian life well. Wanting to be more like Christ, but frustrated in your progress. Well, Peter wants us to be encouraged. When Peter says, when you're insulted or laughed at or demeaned, especially you younger people here, your friends will hear that you're a Christian and they'll mock you for that. What he's saying is that when you're demeaned because of the Christ you believe in, Peter says, don't be surprised. It's actually blessing from God. How so? Well, you're being insulted means something. It means that others see something in you. And what is it that they see? They see Christ. Christ in you. That's what they see. Peter says, the Holy Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And the world takes notice. And much of the world, because it's living in darkness, rejects you. But you, on the other hand, need to take that as a sign of God's blessing upon you. The third link between suffering and glory is that Christian suffering means, listen, that God is already at work in you to make us fit for that day of glory to come when the new heavens and earth descend and everything's purified and renewed. The Christian is going to make it through, but your suffering today means you're on that path. That's what verses 16 to 18 get at. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who who do not obey the gospel? What will it be? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter is referring to a day of judgment to come. I know that doesn't sit well with some people, but... As human beings, we judge things all the time. We judge our car as being too old. We need a new one. Who says God can't judge? I think we should believe and want that. There's a day coming when, the outside, uh, when those outside of the household of God receive the justice that they deserve. But the Christian, guess what, will make it through that day. Why? Because of God's grace. On that day, God will completely purify and prepare his people in holiness. So on that day, we will be completely fit for the place we're going, where the glory of God is to be finally and fully revealed. Now listen, none of us now, right now, are ready for that day. All of us need the purifying work of God to transform our lives today, me included. 
But let me ask you, do you welcome that day? Christian, do you not long for the day when God strips you pure and clean? And not just of your sin, but of that sin nature that you have. You just cannot help but sin and have to apologize over and over again. Do you not long for the day when you won't have to confess every Sunday morning the same old sins? Of course you long for that day. Well, here's what Peter is saying to you and me. Rejoice in your suffering today. For it means God has already worked in you to purify you, to prepare you for that day. That is what fiery trials do. They strip us away of our sin and our idols and cause us to cling to Christ. They make us more like Christ. Our problem is we don't want God to work on us, at least not too much right now, right? Have your way with me, but not too much. No, God, let us cling to our idols of earthly happiness apart from you. And then when that day comes, feel free. Go at it. Totally fix me. This is the wrong way of looking at it, isn't it? Instead, we should pray, Heavenly Father, do whatever you do, need to do to make me fit for that day today. So Christian, do not be surprised anymore when fiery trials come as if God dropped the ball. Don't be surprised by your trials. Instead, be surprised by God's loving will for you. As the Apostle Paul marvelously stated in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is who our God is. This is the one who has his will for you. He's gracious and will give us all things. The surprising thing about fiery trials isn't that we suffer. The surprising thing about fiery trials is that God has nothing but good and loving intentions for all of it, for you, his child. It's all part of God's will for you so that you would instead entrust your soul to your faithful creator and do good. This truth we just looked at about the surprising glory prepares us for our proper response, the surprising good. The big idea here is that when we understand that God is on his throne, working out everything for good, then we entrust our souls to God and do good, and we experience his good when we do. What we're called here to do is to live in thankful submission to God. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, and really mean it. The way Peter lays it out for us is in two parts. First, he shows us the, the surprising goodness of Christian community. That's the church, us. And then he call, shows us the surprising calling of the Christian. First, the surprising goodness of Christian community. You know, one thing we gather from reading this letter is that Peter has a wonderful shepherd's heart for the people of God. Now, where do you think he got this? He witnessed it as a disciple of Jesus, whom Peter refers to in verse 4 as what? The chief shepherd. He's over all. 
Peter was there when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. My sheep, they follow me. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And of course, you remember that night when Jesus, when Peter denied Jesus three times. He says, I do not know that guy. But Jesus did something surprising after his glorious resurrection. Jesus, the chief shepherd, resurrected in glory, came to Peter and asked him three times, do you love me, Peter, once for each of Peter's failings? And Peter replied each time, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And with each reply, Jesus then stated, now, Peter, tend to my sheep, feed my lambs. Now in our text, Peter turns to the leaders of the church, the elders, and he commands them, shepherd the flock. Verses 1 and part of verse 2. This is where you can look in your Bibles as well. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Jesus, the chief shepherd, has a plan for how his people are cared for and how they are led. He has established his authority on earth through whom he shepherds us. And the Greek word for it is elder. uh, It's presbuteros is the Greek word from which we get our word Presbyterian. Very good. Some of you have been in the membership class. As Presbyterians, we are committed to many things, including our churches being led not by a single dude, but by multiple elders with proper godly qualification. Remember in the book of Acts, in chapter 14, when Peter and Barnabas, they went out on their, one of their missionary journeys, and they traveled through Lystra and Derby, and, and there was a lot of converts, but there's also a lot of persecutions. Paul and Barnabas got ran out of town But later, what did they do? They came back through Lystra and Derby and all the other cities. And what did they do? We read here in chapter 14, we read, they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The important point from Peter for us to understand is that the chief shepherd has established on earth under shepherds, the office of elder in the church. It comes from Jesus. It comes from scripture. And the primary description of the elder's calling is what? Is that of being a shepherd. After exhorting the elders to do the work of shepherding, Peter describes the elders' calling in verses 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. First, the elders called to shepherd the flock. This is not a job for the CEO or the prideful businessman. Shepherding is a humble, caring, loving work. Then Peter describes this as exercising oversight or authority over the flock. And then he contrasts three approaches at the beginning with the word not, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. 
Not much could be said. I could go on for hours talking about elders, but let's limit my comments to this theme of the surprising life. Listen, this type of leadership is surprising to this world. In this world, people aspire to positions of leadership not so they can be a loving shepherd to those under their authority, but so that they can call the shots, so they can pull the strings, so they can be served by their underlings. But Jesus surprisingly appends all of this in Mark chapter 10. But it, that way of leading, shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that's what he refers to himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Elders who lead the church have a good and glorious calling to shepherd the flock of Jesus like Jesus for Jesus' sake. A good elder follows Jesus as they lead Jesus' flock. They abide in Christ. They repent daily of their sins. They rest daily in the gospel of grace. They soak in scripture and they pray thy kingdom come. And then they roll up their sleeves and they serve the flock. It is hard work. It is intimidating work. It is often thankless work. But it also comes with a great reward. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd, shepherd appears, when he appears, you will receive an, the unfading crown of glory. I have no idea what that looks like. I just have a feeling it's kind of be like the rock horn thing, right? Oh my gosh. Thank you. Now, the surprising goodness of Christian community isn't just that Jesus ordains elders to shepherd the flock like Jesus, but also that the flock, listen, this is most of us here, the flock subjects itself like Jesus. The beauty of the body of Christ isn't just that they are godly leaders, but also faithful followers, and they're united as one. Such living, think about it, such living, united, living like this, leaders um, and laity, united in the gospel, loving each other well, accomplishing what Christ wants on earth. This, is, this type of living is very surprising in this world, but it shouldn't be. And so after exhorting the elders to shepherd well, Peter turns his attention to everyone else in the church, but first he singles out the younger ones. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, all of us now, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Any of you remember those bumper stickers? Question, authority. Usually found them on VWs or Subarus. Sorry if you own a Subaru. <laughs> They're a great car. Um, we tend to think that this generation gap that exists is like a new phenomenon. <laughs> but it's been around for thousands of years. And I kind of get it. In our world, questioning authority, I mean, it makes sense for a number of reasons. From a secular sense, 
People see how power and authority is used every day all over the world for selfish gain, from the lowest level to the highest levels of government, and it's shameful. But we also see it in the church. There have been innumerable failures and scandals with those in authority, from the Roman Catholic pre-sex abuse scandals to Protestant pastor moral failures. I get it. But you see, this is why Peter exhorts the elders first. You, elders, are to be surprisingly different than the leadership that exists in this fallen world. And now, those of you who aren't elders, you are also to be surprisingly different in how you willingly, with love, subject yourself to the leadership of Christ's shepherds. You who are younger, subject yourselves to the elders, Peter says. Why? Well, on the one hand, this is God's way. It's in Scripture, so there it is. It's his design. And so by rejecting God's design for authority through the church on earth, then you're rejecting God's authority in heaven. Can you see that? And two, here's really, I think, really where it hits home. We need godly shepherding more than we realize. It's part of our fallen nature. We we tend to think that we're more mature spiritually and emotionally and relationally than we really are. And so what do we need? Peter says, humility. Again, verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you. This isn't just for the elders, all of us, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is a great grace giver. You won't experience it if you're prideful. You'll probably experience some sort of fiery trial. But he gives grace to the humble. Now, the Greek word translated clothe yourself is a word that conveys the image of tying on an apron. And I think Peter would have a clear image of what that looks like. Remember when the disciples entered into that upper room and Jesus greeted them there and he tied on an apron. And then like the servant he is, he stooped down and he washed their feet. And you remember how Peter refused to let Jesus wash his feet. Why? Because one hand, Peter was so surprised by Jesus taking on the role of a servant to wash his feet. But also Peter was too proud to be served by Jesus. But Jesus said, unless I wash your feet, you have no place in my kingdom. And then Peter went overboard and he says, then wash my whole body. (laughs) What happened to Peter in that moment? He recognized his own need for grace. Prior to that, it was the other disciples. They need grace, not me. Wash their feet, not me, not mine. Maybe some of you here need that message. Maybe you can see why other people maybe need to become a Christian, but you yourself, I don't need Jesus. I encourage you to come to him today. John Stott writes, listen, Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. 
realism that recognizes great. That humility, listen, is distrust of self, which depends on grace. And so listen, it is only when we come to distrust ourselves that we can begin to entrust our souls to our faithful creator while doing good. There's no other way. Jesus' desire for his flock is that they are faithful, godly, under shepherds called elders who follow Jesus as they lead the flock and that the flock would love their elders and seek to clothe themselves with Christ-like humility and submission. Listen, when churches live this out here on earth, it is surprising for the watching world to see. Grace Church, may we live with this surprising goodness of Christian community. Lastly, Peter shows us the surprising goodness of the Christian calling. Sadly, myself included, uh, you know, many times, in many ways, we Christians, we live chasing our own worldly dreams as Christians, and then we just want God to stamp his approval on it, and then, you know, somehow make it happen for us, right? Because we're we're good Christians, and that's what God's there for. Like, he's some great uncle in the sky who's just out for for what we want. My friends, I think this is one of the reasons why God in love brings fiery trials into our lives to humble us and to remind us of our calling. Peter spoke of our calling from God earlier in this letter. Remember in chapter two? Listen to who you are, Christian. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Christian, has God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Then you belong to him, not the other way around. He is the potter, you are the clay, he is the king, you are his subject. The world exists for his glory, and you exist to bring him glory. Peter is saying to us, Christian, remember your calling and trust your life to God. And then live this out. We see a bit of this in verses 6 through 9. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. First, I want us to see that this is not an exhortation to become humble. Work on your humility. Try to become a little more humble person. No, this is a command to, to humble yourself. It's a calling to Find your rightful place. To put the 
playing card of your life back into the deck of in God's hands. Let him shuffle you. Let him deal you where he wishes for his own glory. This is you and me stewarding every minute of every day for God's glory. This is us praying thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and really meaning it. And here's where the surprise comes in. When you abandon all your selfish ambitions and humble yourself under the God's mighty hand, it will feel like you're losing everything dear to you. But to your surprise, what you find is you finally experience the glory-filled life your soul longs for. Jesus once told Peter and the other disciples these words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? That is not an easy calling. <laughs> Taking up our cross and following after Jesus, I can understand why someday we just want to put it down. Do whatever we want to do. So we must be sober-minded and watchful. Peter said. We have an adversary, the devil, who's seeking to tear us apart. It's true. Again, what does this mean? It means we need humility. Humility to know that we're in over our heads. We cannot wash our own feet. We need the power of our Savior in our lives. Humility to entrust our lives to God. Humility to cast our cares upon God, because he cares for us. Peter says there's a surprising goodness that we experience in our calling as Christians when we entrust our lives to our faithful creator. And do you believe this? In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But let me first read the last part of our text, the part that ends with amen, at least, verses 10 through 11. It shows us it shows us the goodness of seeking God's will in our life and entrusting our souls to him. And it reads, and after you've suffered a little while, often it's true, right? Our suffering doesn't seem like a little while, especially if you've got some chronic disease or struggle. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you, to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is telling us that even the fiery trials of life that surprise us are no longer surprising because God is on his throne. This universe is his. That's what the word dominion means. He exercises dominion. Whether you believe it or not, God is on his throne. And this very same God who rules and reigns over all is called what? The God of all grace. Not most grace. All grace. All grace. 
Listen, there's no grace in your life that does not have God as its source. Chew on that. All grace flows from Christ's fountain of grace upon this world and upon God's people. And there's grace to come, future grace that awaits. And after all our suffering, God who has called you personally to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, not Aunt Carol or some cute angel in heaven, but God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I can't help but think of Gomer Pyle. Surprise, surprise, surprise. (laughs) Younger ones have to YouTube that one. (laughs) our weekly communion is a time for our hearts and souls to confess to him belongs dominion forever and ever it's a time for us to gladly recognize that God is on his throne exercising dominion perfectly a time for us even in the midst of our suffering to feast on God's grace to us in Christ Jesus and rejoice. A time for us to once again entrust our souls to our faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Well, Lord, that's a long passage. There's so much in there, but we're thankful that we're able to see that, Father, you are on your throne. And we believe that. And we believe that whatever your will is, it is good. And we believe that you even will our suffering, just like you willed the suffering of your son. Without that, we would not know you and have peace with you. So may the truths that we study press deep into our hearts. May we place the playing card of our lives back in your deck and let you shuffle us as you will. Amen.